0: Henry Store. It's February 26th, and I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Dr. Emily Chamley who is the provost and dean of the college at Washington College in Eastern Shore, Maryland. I should also get on the record that Emily is a very good friend, that I've known her for over 20 years now, that she's the reason that I decided to become an economist. She's the reason that I decided to come to graduate school at George Mason University. She's the reason that I decided to study with Don Lavoie, she's the reason why I just focus my research on the relationship between culture and economic activity. She's the reason that I got interested in looking at post-disaster recovery stuff. And we've done, you know, over a dozen things together, uh, including, you know, academic articles and book chapters and the like. And so we've developed something of a shorthand. So I'll try to not um, use any shorthand today and and, um, spell things out. But so I guess... How about we begin at the beginning? You have a long history with George Mason University. You started out here as an undergraduate. Would you undergraduate? Would you tell me about your time here as an undergraduate? What George Mason was like? I will. Recall?
1: First, I want to say thank you, and uh, and it's a privilege and an honor to be interviewed by you. Um, I'll probably end up saying more about that as we continue our conversation. Uh, I came to George Mason University as a business major, and that was my plan because I was I was very interested in the performing arts and really connected with the performing arts scene in Washington D.C. and didn't want to uh, disconnect uh, from those uh, from those relationships. So I wanted to be close enough. So I came to Mason, and I thought it was very practical to study business, so I could then have a business acumen as I. Built a career in the performing arts, and I took uh, Jim Bennett's econ uh, introductory micro theory, and he terrified me. Uh, and and just out of sheer sheer terror, I worked really hard, and I did uh, pretty darn well in that first course. And I continued on, and I and I took. Uh, uh, the the sequence the micro macro sequence at the in, intermediate level and that included uh, a course with Don Boudreau and I was just hooked I loved econ by then and uh, I was really excited and I said well what what's the next course I get to take and uh, my business uh, major advisor said well you no know, you're done uh, you don't need to take any more econ uh, but you do need to take more accounting and finance and I it, and it just uh, sent a, a cold cold um, shiver through through my heart because I hated uh, accounting. And I, and I was really sad that I didn't, didn't get to take more econ. And I thought, that should be a sign of something. And so um, I thought about it, and I, and I uh, shifted gears to economics. And that's when I got to take Karen Vaughn's Austrian course. And, uh, and finally, I got to take Don Lavoie's uh, comparative economic systems course. And it was on the first day of that class, I can still remember it. Uh, on the first day of that class, he talked about um, he, already he, we he knew that that uh, there was a kind of free market bent to uh, the students uh, in in the program, and he said, "But if if you're coming into this class only with the idea that you want want to find um, better arguments for criticizing Marx, uh, you're really missing half the story uh, that." much more important uh, is that you come away from this class with a deeper appreciation, a deep, deep appreciation for why so many people find Marx and Marxism so attractive, that you can't understand the history of the 20th century uh, without understanding how uh, deep to the core uh, Marxist ideology um, uh, hits people, and if you don't understand that, you really don't understand the 20th century. And that was the first thing that really just caught my attention—that this guy was the real deal, right? A real scholar. And and the second thing he said that that just caught me was—he uh, then started talking about the history of of fascism, and he said, you know, what is it? You know, it's to any student of the 20th century, you've got to take seriously the question of what it was. That allowed a society that was the source of some of the most sophisticated philosophy, some of the best science and engineering, uh, you know, so much of the most beautiful and sublime music, what allowed that society to systematically murder six million of its own people? and that was like you know you, you take a step back and before you could even catch your breath he said and as economics students of this period it is your duty to understand what economics has to do with this the answer to that question what is it about the economic system that was in place that contributed to the contributed to the systematic murder of 6 million people and literally that moment i was hooked and I remember that night. I stayed up all night. I didn't sleep at all. And I remember the one question that kept going through my head. I I, I said, "What do you? I want to do that. I want I want to have a command and understanding of economic systems like like he does, like Lavoie does. And I want to be able to teach it because that's sparking the imagination in in uh, young people's minds and I want to be able to do it on top of all that I want to be able to do it as good as he does it and the next thought was well that means you're going to have to get your PhD in economics and I that was the moment that I, I decided that that's what I was going to do
0: so I want to I, I absolutely want to talk more about Don Don as a shared mentor of uh, Emily and, and mine the, but I want to ask you I sort of ask you to go back a little bit more you talked about uh taking a few econ courses and wanting to take increasingly more econ courses, what was it about economics that was attractive even early on before the Austrian economics before the dawn's recognition of the importance of understanding how certain yeah. economic systems it, work and it, what have you?
1: It definitely was the the, the clarification of thinking uh, that that once seen through the economic lens, so much that sounded complicated or misguided or stupid suddenly made sense. I could suddenly make sense of a lot of things like public policy that didn't make any sense whatsoever. Once you understood it from the standpoint of the incentives on the ground, it did it did make sense. That was just marvelously clarifying, and so that it was it was the elegance of of explanation that attracted me the most it it at first, especially.
0: And then the then you mentioned though that the, then it was sort of after those uh, first set of courses, then it was Austrian and it was comparative economic systems. And so was it was that a different kind of economics than you were learning in the first set of courses? Was it something special or not special about that? I ask that because you've gone on to become an Austrian economist, president of the you know Society for the Development of Austrian Economics, and what have you. And so what was it?
1: Yeah, that's a great question because um, it and it's, and it's still with me. I still love the elegance and of of a good, clean, clear economic explanation cuts through, uh, you know, all of all of the um, messiness, uh, and I st- I still hold that um, uh, very close. But um, what it allows you to do, I think that that there's a kind of uh, maturation process that happens uh, when you move when you embrace the economic way of thinking, I think that that allows you the confidence, um, the intellectual confidence, to then uh, venture out into messier and messier environments. Um, The the human world, the social world, is very messy, and it doesn't always conform to what uh, the standard economic theory would predict. And rather than uh, running away or... or, um, in a knee-jerk fashion, defending the economic perspective, I really wanted to venture into those territories. Um, I was really interested in uh, in, in uh, philosophical questions that problematized the economic way of thinking. So Don Lavoie's work, for example, uh, was really pushing us to, uh, 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 to take on the interpretive turn, the hermeneutical turn that many other social sciences had, at, like anthropology, where... It was the messiness of human culture uh, that was the source of excitement, intellectual excitement, and it was for me too. And it, and the way in which Don um, Don opened up that space was you were never told to leave behind the elegance of the economic explanation. You were invited to bring that with you as we ventured into the territory where we were uh, thinking about a more complicated the more complicated dimensions of human decision-making and human interaction. And so I like the fact that Austrian economics and comparative systems uh, invited the conversation around the messiness of the social world.
0: So you mentioned, so Don LaVoy's come up now a couple of times, uh, and it's, it's still early on, it's having this impact on you when you're an undergraduate, that you decide as a result of his class, that you want to become an economist, you want to become an economist like him. So just, I guess the question is, what is, it, what is it, what was it about him as a teacher? You mentioned some things, but I wondered if I could get you to talk more about that and more specifically, what was he like as a teacher?
1: Well, I only had the one cl- undergraduate class with him I, I did uh, sit in on his graduate version of his comparative systems course as an undergraduate um, but what it mostly was was uh, the invitation to be a part of readings groups for example he treated me like a graduate student as an undergraduate he invited me into those circles and I'm sure I was a total uh, pain in the in the rear end to the graduate students who had worked so hard to get close to to him. And here was this undergraduate, you know, kind of, you know, tugging at their coattails kind of thing. And uh, they were, I look back on that now, and I realize, now that I'm on the other end of it, how incredibly patient they were. Uh, Because like I said, I was like a puppy who was, you know, tripping all over herself. Um, You know, just three steps behind them, uh, in in terms of, I, I hadn't done nearly the reading that the graduate students had done. And but still, I was, Entering into these these conversations, trying to do my best and trying to participate, which probably was again pretty annoying, uh, but but Don, uh, you know, was was just wildly enthusiastic about this this uh, uh, undergrad who was expressing this kind of passion for the ideas, and uh, and so his willingness to work with me one on one in independent studies as a you know it felt like getting treated like a graduate student. I will tell you the worst part of all of that, though, was being a first-year graduate student. And I was just a first-year graduate student. I was not special at that point. I mean, at least that's the way, you know, Don had to, I think Don consciously took a step back because I had to get through econometrics. I had to get through micro and macro. I had to get through the math econ sequence. And, you know, and it's like, he needed to figure out whether or not I was going to be around for the second year. And a lot of, a lot of people weren't around for the second year. And so he, he did take a step back in that first year. And I kind of got what he was doing, that I needed to bond with my cohort and, and, and bond over the common experience that all graduate students go through in their first, their first year. And it's decidedly non-Austrian, or at least it was at the time. Uh, and, and it was pretty standard, uh, the approach that was taken, and I think that that was a, a kind of, are you going to make it in the discipline uh, test year? Uh, but I did, and and I did come back for that second year, and, and the world opened back up to me again, and I did get to start taking uh, courses uh, again with Jack High. I had taken uh, some with him as an undergrad, and I got to take more courses with Jack and Don and, and Karen, and that, and, and, and Dick Wagner, and that that opened up those doors again intellectually, and so I got to breathe and exhale again.
0: So I'll, I'll, I want to come back at some point and ask you about who the other students were that were around when you were an undergraduate and a graduate student, but just staying on Don for a minute. So he, you know, was influenced by some eclectic thinkers, right? And so there's the standard sort of Austrian ones, Mises Hayek, Rothbard, maybe Kuzner, who was his teacher at NYU, Lockman, obviously, who he he really embraced, but then folks like Gadamer and, you know, the anthropologist Clifford Gertz and political things like Hannah Arendt and Foucault and and sort of these sort of wide-ranging influences. And I guess I was just curious, do you share any of those influences? If if you do share any of them, could you sort of maybe mention a couple and and talk about why they were important to you or yeah. why they they mattered to you
1: yeah uh, and and we were wrestling a lot then with Jürgen Habermas that was that was a challenge that was a challenge and um, uh, uh uh Martin Heidegger was the, other, was the other one that was a real real challenge. Uh, but definitely it was there's still an emphasis, though, with Hayek. I think that that was, uh, that was an, uh, a principal em- emphasis in a lot of the readings groups because he would pair a Hayekian reading with a Gautamer reading. And so Gautamer was very, very influential in my thinking, um, but, but it was in, in tandem with some other social scientific text so we might be reading Geertz for example alongside Gadamer we might be reading Hayek alongside Gadamer because he really wanted that conversation between the philosophical hermeneutics and the social science because it was diving into the philosophical hermeneutics i think for him and at least i took it this way was not an end in and of itself it was to make our science better was to make uh, economics better and so it it was kind of um, what's the word when you you know it was a it was a lever point, but it was a fun, it was it was a fundamental shift in how I thought about uh, my work ever after. I couldn't not think about that work uh, other than through a kind of interpretive uh, hermeneutical lens. Once we had really dived deep with uh, into it. Uh, but it was always then circling back to the Austrian uh, Austrian economics. But I would say that it's that pairing of say Hayek and Gadamer that really shaped my thinking, uh, and in and in particular shaped my thinking around the project of understanding uh, social learning. That this was what was exciting about uh, about Austrian economics to me. Um, I was interested in entrepreneurship. I was interested in in a lot of the um, themes that we see in uh, human action, for example, but what really excited me was uh, Hi- Hayek's explorations of social learning, and the the spontaneous order themes that we see in Hayek uh, were, I think, paralleled in uh, in Gadamer. and there was this healthy respect that I could see between these two literatures that um, that that mutually influenced and made one another better, and that. That circle, that that circuit of interaction between philosophical hermeneutics and uh, the social learning threads of Hayek's work, were what were most exciting to me.
0: So, so it's interesting you say that because when I read your your work, there are three things that jump out at me, sort of when I you know, and, and I think are consistent across the board from your you know, the the papers you were writing when you were in graduate school to your most recent uh, efforts. And one is that there's this sort of uh, desire to do field work and, and it's based on field work and, and it's commitment to doing field work as a part of the empirical process, that there's this sort of recognition that culture is playing some role in shaping people's behaviors um, and attitudes. And then this... this uh, Third thing is what you just mentioned, which is sort of appreciation for for um, social learning processes and, and the capacity uh, of you know these these you know systems and structures to, to, to really make it possible for for individuals to discover new knowledge and to and to coordinate activities and, and 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 the like. And so I guess I wanted to ask you one if you agree with that, and then two if you do agree with that, why these particular things, and how do they work together, and, and, and is, are, they, are they connected in, yeah. in some way?
1: Yeah, and I think that the, um, uh, you were right to f- hone in on Gadamer and uh, the, the interpretive turn that, that, that uh, Don was uh, really trying to emphasize with his students, because I think that thread is common throughout these three things. So um, if we want to really understand uh, human decision-making... Uh, if we want to have an economics that's an economics of meaning, where we're really taking seriously the plans and purposes of individuals, uh, really taking seriously the, ex, the the role that their expectations play in their action. If we want to take seriously the pathways of learning that are generated from those actions and how that feeds into a kind a kind of uh, the, the kind of endogenous sources of change that Austrians are uh, so good at identifying that that we don't boil down to a place of static equilibrium. We are constantly in the process of generating internally a source of uh, sources of change. So much of those sources of change are the learning that happens uh, as we engage in, a- in, in meaningful acts. And so if we want to understand all of that, we've got to understand what are the interpretive frames that, uh, frameworks that, that decision makers are bringing to the task of of making a decision developing and executing a plan and that that interpretive component necessarily to me means that you that you need to be talking about what's the context in, in which people are enmeshed when they're starting to make a decision when they're when they're trying to process all the information that's coming at them when they're trying to think through what they've learned what's the context and the cultural context is critical there so if we want to understand the interpretive frameworks that people bring with them as they're making decisions and and carving out strategies of action the cultural context is is critical and if The cultural context is critical. uh, Then you really need to start doing field work where you can talk to people. Uh, It and again, I don't, I don't dismiss or uh, or or disregard the um, uh, the quantitative emphasis of our discipline. I think, I think that there's very good reason why it has a a quantitative thrust. Uh, But my own comparative advantage and my own interest. Is in asking the questions. Well, what what do we learn if we go beyond that? If we have an aggregate data set, data set and we're able to generate um, uh, quantifiable results from that, um, that's a great first step in my mind. But then I want to ask, well, what do we learn if we if we um, flip the veil up above, off of those aggregate? outcomes, or aggregate results, and try to understand the nuance. Again, diving back into the messiness of the social world. What happens if we start you know, paying attention to uh, the very specific details uh, from which people are drawing as they're, as they're forming and uh, as their decisions are, are being framed out by their interpretive perspective? That requires fieldwork. And you really have to talk to real human beings uh, to be able to do that. So to me, the sort of interpretive turn is the answer to the question of why culture. It's also the answer to the question of why fieldwork, and and to me, uh, it's it's also the answer to the question of of why social learning, uh, because that's what's really exciting about about economics, is that. We are able to generate through these individual decisions that people make. We, we generate outcomes that uh, have a kind of unintended beauty uh, and coordination that goes well beyond whatever could have been designed by the individual. So, but somehow we must be able to connect those individual decisions that people are making, and the widespread unintended social outcomes that emerge. Well, how do we build that connection? There's got to be some way that we're building that connection. And I do think that that connection has to go back to an economics of meaning. We have to understand how it is that people are interpreting their circumstances, and we have to dive into that interpretive framework. And that's, again, we're back to field uh, fieldwork. So I and the emphasis on culture. So those, those three things do fit together for me, and they all are tied to the interpretive project.
0: So I've heard you in the past, I, I think I've read you uh, also using this example of the social scientists putting together puzzle pieces. Mm-hmm. The, could you just walk me through what that that metaphor is meant to signal like how it works, and what the mechanics of it are, and, and what it's meant to sort of illustrate, because I think it gets at this sort of connection that you were just talking about between fieldwork culture and social learning.
1: Sure. So as social scientists, it's a little bit like uh, when we're trying to understand some very complex social phenomenon. So it could be economic development, or it could be um, recovery after a catastrophic disaster. Um, it, 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 It... Name your complex social phenomenon that you want to try to understand. There's a couple of different ways that we can um, uh, think about um, addressing, uh, trying to tackle that problem. You know, one is the stan- the standard a- approach within economics is uh, really kind of seeing the problem as a kind of racehorse where you've got multiple factors um, that could explain the phenomenon. And so you... Uh, you you set up uh, some factors of explanation uh, against each other, and you kind of let them run the racehorse and see which one, which factors have the most explanatory power. Right, and that's sort of the the um, the, the quantitative uh, econometric approach is that we want to figure out uh, which explanatory variable has the most um, most power there. There are some phenomena, though, that are far more complex that it's it's really um, not racehorse like. It's more uh, like a puzzle. And one way to see the puzzle is the, is how different pieces fit together. So you could imagine uh, a puzzle that's very simple, uh, you know, a, a, one of those big twenty four piece puzzles that um, you know a, a kid uh, you might give a, a child. and and in pretty short order, the child puts it together, and you can kind of see the puzzle uh, take shape. You know where you can kind of see the the picture, and then. But our puzzles could get more complex. Um, so imagine a puzzle uh, that is now far more complicated, like a thousand piece puzzle. Uh, it's difficult to do, but still accomplishable, right? Especially if you've got a picture of the puzzle. In front of you, which most of us do. If we do a puzzle with a thousand pieces, we look at the picture that we're trying to to get at. Um, complex social phenomena are, are, tend not to be like that, though. We don't. We're not really trying. We, we can't really quite get at what the explanation is. In part because it's like someone's handed us the the puzzle in a paper sack rather than a box with the picture on it. And so we're trying to put it together, and it's it, it's really much more difficult. Now imagine that the puzzle is three-dimensional and with odd shapes, and you're trying to figure out how the puzzle pieces fit together. Now it gets it gets more and more complicated, and we still and, – and, and if the puzzle is so large, you know, that we can't see the whole thing um, – it becomes far more unwieldy. We can bring in cranes to move the large pieces around together, but we can't see the whole thing from one vantage point. It looks different. The puzzle looks different if we're looking at it from the southwest rather than from the northeast, or if we go up into an airplane, it looks different. So when we're trying to really wrestle with complex social phenomena – uh, that uh, I think Austrian economics really try to wrestle with, um, like pr- processes of complex social learning, it's, um, it's too complicated uh, to start thinking about that phenomena in the, in the context of a racehorse. Uh, one puzzle piece can't be pitted against another puzzle piece as being the winner, as being the, the thing that explains it, because one puzzle piece is fundamentally dependent on other puzzle pieces. Um, moving into an environment where um, those puzzle pieces are interpretive beings. So in other words, now we're switching the metaphor here. It's not a puzzle. It's a complex political economy where human beings are making decisions that are changing the shape of the puzzle all the time. Now suddenly the puzzle becomes so complicated that we really need to kind of step inside and start really understanding from the perspective of the of the human beings that make up this large puzzle how they're understanding their own uh circumstances within this puzzle within this political economy and if we and if we step in we do give up that aerial view we do give up that ability to see you know, the competing uh, uh, explanatory variables and racing against each other. But we gain so much more in terms of our ability to understand uh, what is shaping the perspective of the decision makers inside that political economy puzzle.
0: So I can imagine, though, someone hearing that and saying, if they weren't sympathetic, saying, so what you're saying is that social science at best, can teach us a lot about individual cases, but can't really teach us anything about general phenomena, right? Because you've now got the social scientists inside the puzzle, up close, looking really at details, and you've admitted already that depending on where you enter, you might get a different picture, and that your answer might not be, is going to be necessarily one of many possible answers, and what have you. And so is there a way to... Address that concern, or is that just not a legitimate concern? Or
1: no, I, I think that that's uh, that would be a legitimate concern if that if if what someone took away from from that um, explanation was that um, it's only about the investigator getting inside and up close to the phenomenon that she's trying to understand. I think that would be problematic, right? Um, what I'm talking about is. Think about a triangle, okay? Um, a, a triangle with uh, with legs that have some distance to them. So, you've got the phenomenon at one point of the triangle. You've got the phenomenon that you're trying to understand. So, it might be economic development. It might be something like post disaster recovery that I'm trying to understand as the phenomenon. At the at the other edge of the at the at the other another point of the triangle is theory, right? Economic theory, political theory. What's what's the theor- sociological theory, anthropological theory? What theoretical perspective uh, we have is the starting point that enables us to start asking the right, start asking good questions. Right. Uh, that uh, that's an incru- That's that's an important piece of uh, of of understanding the puzzle. Is that when we enter in and up close to the puzzle, we're going in not really as as other um, pieces of the puzzle're going in armed with the theoretical perspective that we bring, so economic theory is among those um, um, among those that we would bring with us as we're engaging in this up close uh, investigation and exploration at the other end of the tr- at the other point of the triangle is the investigator herself, so the investigator is armed with theory but also armed with uh, the ability to actually in, engage in, in, and talk to uh, the uh, the subjects who are experiencing the phenomenon. And so there are moments when uh, you want to shorten up that leg of the triangle between the investigator and the phenomenon, right? Uh, or the investigator and the subject who's experiencing the phenomenon. So you can actually have a conversation and learn from them. But you know, you you also, that distance, you stretch back out, you stretch out the leg of that triangle so that you can then get, you know, kind of reconsult your theory and say, okay, this is what I heard in the field. And that contradicts or that supports this theoretical perspective. Uh, And I I think that's where the excitement comes in in this kind of work, is when sometimes you find that your theory, your theoretical perspective, is completely affirmed, and that's that's kind of cool sometimes. Uh, But other times you find a real puzzle where you don't understand uh, why you're seeing or hearing something that is at odds with what theory would have predicted. So I do think that we that the up close investigation can inform the theoretical perspective, just as theory is informing our understanding of the phenomenon.
0: Let's um actually turn attention now to one of the first puzzles that you tried to solve, right? The 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 puzzle of understanding female entrepreneurship in Ghana that was your dissertation and then your first book, The Cultural Foundations of Economic Development. What what was the puzzle there that you were trying to understand? What were the questions that you went into the the field there with
1: Yeah, I, I, I it was really a uh, stumbling into, I didn't go initially thinking that that would be the project. The pro- I had done some work on, uh, dabbled in some uh, culture stuff, mainly because Don's readings groups had really introduced us to a lot of anthropology. I was very interested in in culture, but I, I never even thought of it being the basis of my dissertation, because I was going to do uh, work on political economy structures and Post-colonial Ghana, and that that was going to be the focus of my work, and but it never occurred to me not to go. If I going to, if I was going to write about a place, I was I was I wanted to go, and I was uh, there for not even a couple of days before it hit me that the um, excitement and the energy and verve of the marketplace and these women that were uh, in control of the of the informal markets, it it just everything hit me at a visceral level that uh, there was so much to be explored here and so much to be explained, so much that I didn't understand and so many questions that leapt to my mind that it 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 had to be the thing that I was going to spend the next couple of years investigating. So even within the first couple of days of just visiting the place, I completely transitioned uh, from a, a, a straight-up political economy uh, paper uh, dissertation to what eventually became what I would call a cultural economy approach to Austrian economics, and uh, what excited me about it was that there were there was this um, process of um, social coordination. There was clear there were clearly processes of um, uh, social learning and, so, and and discovery that were not obvious that there were that that were shaping the very a very specific form of economic development in that context and it had to have cultural explanations that there was no way that pure theory uh divorced from context could get us where we needed to go in terms of an explanation of the patterns of economic development that i was seeing and so it it just was an obvious thing that it never occurred to me not to do field work which is I look back on that now is it real. It's really nuts. It's really crazy, right? Because no one, very few people in economics does field work, and uh, and at the time nobody did, and and so it was uh, a really foolhardy thing for me to do. But you know, I told Don about it, and he's like, "Oh, great! That sounds like a great idea." So. Um, uh, no one ever stopped me. No one. Ever, no one ever told me I couldn't. Right. So. So that's. So that's what I did. But I, I'm not sure if I answered your question. You,
0: you did, but I mean, I mean, uh, sort of push you a little bit. So, like, so you mentioned fieldwork isn't something that economists do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 original dissertation topic you described is much more of a traditional economics dissertation, even. Um, field work even at the time that you did it was something that was odd for somebody at George Mason to do, right So Austrian economists weren't even doing field work at the time. And so so maybe I, I guess I want I, I, I want to ask you so what how does that how did that work? right? So a lot of people a lot of people don't haven't done field work. They may you know graduate students may be contemplating doing field work. You know professional economists may be thinking of adding it. How did, in that first instance how did it work? Because you weren't trained in doing this, and so could just sort of walk us through the process. What is, you know, you get on the ground to do field work in Ghana, and you do what? You talk yeah. to who? You well,
1: I do have to credit John Payton, who was uh, a Robinson professor here and uh, and a celebrated anthropologist and uh, in, in um, uh, who did his work in West Africa. So he was very very helpful to me, um, uh, but but. For the most part it was self-taught and and I you know read up on ethnographic methods um, and and so if I were to de- to describe um, what i uh, the the best approaches towards ethnography. It wouldn't necessarily be what I practiced in the in the that um, uh, those early days because I'd made a lot of mistakes and I um, had to go back and redo stuff that uh, that had I been more seasoned and had I been trained better I wouldn't have made those mistakes. Um, but but ultimately what you want to be able to do is to uh, create opportunities for where people can share. Um, their understanding of their own decision-making processes and their interpretation of the world. You don't want to rely on. Uh, mostly, what I'm not doing. I'm not when I'm doing field work. I'm not trying to gather facts. Right. I'm in the sense of there are things that are unknown about what happened, for example, and then here were some people who might have been witnesses and then I want to gather facts. I mean, I think that that's what a, a journalist does, uh, for example. Um, there's As a social scientist, we can always almost find better sources for factual information that's been verified and, um, and, and double-checked. So the value of talking to people is almost always not about gathering the facts as much as uh, gathering an understanding of uh, the different perspectives that are shaping their decision-making, gathering an understanding of the different narratives that are shaping a social context. So the same phenomenon, um, same political event, for example, the same uh, shift in um, the way in which the the marketplace was governed, uh, the same events, the same quote-unquote facts can be seen completely differently uh, depending on uh, whether it was a yam trader versus an onion trader, it might be seen very differently if it was someone from um, who spoke Tui rather than uh, uh, Fanti, right? So, so these differences were what I was trying to capture and understand, and and if there were differences that that mattered, how did that impact their ability? To uh, uh, to garner resources, to keep control over resources, um, what were the commonalities amongst all the, amongst women in the marketplace? And oftentimes, it was the the commonality was their experience and difficulties of keeping control over resources vis a vis the men in their lives. What were the strategies that they uh, that they cultivated and practiced to help keep the resources in their uh, under their control. And those were the kinds of things that I was after and trying to understand what were the norms that when they did develop those um, structures for rotating credit uh, savings organizations, for example, what were the norms that governed those those uh, um, institutions? What, what were the soft practices, as well as the hard articulated rules, what were the soft practices uh, that... Uh, women would deploy when they ran into trouble. Those were the kinds of things that I I really wanted to leverage when I was talking to them.
0: The uh so I want to you I've heard you say elsewhere that when you go into the field you have to be prepared for surprise. And so I I wonder what and maybe this is another way of asking, you know, what did you learn in the course of writing the book about Ghanaian market women or what have you but what sort of surprises did you did you have what were things that your um, sort of priors about how markets work about how you know marketplaces in 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 you know West Africa work about the nature of economic activity in general what have you, you know this kind of post-colonial context what sort what what sort of priors and that you had about those things turned out to just not
1: be. Uh, or- right and i and i think that this also uh, uh will um uh reveal a, a real naivete i mean i have to remember that w- when i was doing this work i was like like 24 years old right and and so uh you know pretty limited experience in 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 the uh, broader world uh, but my assumptions going in were uh that this was a context in which we were in a poor country let's start from there and that, given that it was a and it was a country where a context where women uh, did not have uh, a lot in the way of political rights and um, social freedoms that I enjoy, uh, that I grew up enjoying. And my assumptions, I think, my priors going in, probably not fully articulated, but I think my priors going in was that uh, here would be uh, a a context in which uh, women. Uh, would not have much agency, and that I think was one of the things that was so shocking when I when I saw the the um, uh, the vitality of the of the informal marketplace. I think that's one of the things that shocked me out of that. Right? Is that is that okay? There you know, there's a lot of things to criticize uh, uh, in terms of of social critique around the status of women in this context. But these are women that are very much. In charge of this environment, and this is their space. And literally, men would have to ask permission uh, to uh, be able to operate within that space. And 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 oftentimes, they wouldn't even be gained. They wouldn't be granted permission to operate within that space. And they knew their boundaries, and it was where the the um, there was a power hierarchy. Embedded within the informal market, and there was far more agency uh, and social power than I understood there to be uh, initially. And that, um, and that was that would certainly not have surprised anybody who grew up in that context. But it sure surprised me, right? Um, and and it was one of the. And and also, it's important to know that in those, um, you know, that was the the. Late eighties, early nineties, and so so it was the height of uh, for me feminist critiques of social structures, and so I I saw oppression everywhere, right? Uh, and uh, and and there again, there was a lot to criticize, but at the same time, I think it was humbling to me to recognize how much. Uh, power and agency was in the hands of women because they seized it. They grabbed it and, and under very, very difficult circumstances. And that that was humbling to have that awakening.
0: So your next time in the field, if I'm not mistaken, is when you end up in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. And you're – so what, what was that about? What did you – go go there to try to study sure. or understand and what did you end up? Sure. Um, I mean
1: you know, doing? again when you're a when you're a- a faculty member at a small liberal arts college, you learn how to be, to take advantage of opportunities when they present themselves to you. We did not, as a college, have a study abroad program in Ghana, but we did have one in Zimbabwe. So I led the study abroad program in Zimbabwe and uh, brought 25 students with me from uh, colleges in the Midwest uh, with me. And it was, it was uh, one of the two uh, most incredible teaching experiences of my life. It was, it was a um, uh, Really, really transformational because it was that um, engaged teaching and learning that that happens beyond the traditional classroom. That is uh, was full bore, and there's nothing like being in country with uh, with a group of students uh, and 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 doing this kind of uh, engaged discovery work collaboratively with students where you didn't know from one day to the next what you were going to discover. And so the the work I was doing with students felt in one way like a certain kind of field work, uh, but it did, by proximity, it allowed me to be uh, there and I could do, while I was teaching, I was also uh, doing more research in the marketplace. Uh, and, and, again, this was an area where women were dominant, but it was a very different culture. This was um, – uh, uh, Shona culture, which was instead of being matriarchal, like the Akan are in West Africa and and Ghana, uh, this was a uh, patriarchal uh, community. And women were still dominant in the marketplace, but they had very different inheritance structures. They had very different property relations, very different rules around the family purse. And so that really was allowing me to triangulate between you know, my own context of what I understand as uh, market engagement in from a Western perspective, introduced to what that looked like, what markets looked like in West Africa. Um, there was so much that was different, but I wasn't quite sure just with that one case, what was uh, West African versus African generally, uh, what was um, uh, a particular tribal um expression of market exchange would be different in... And so what it allowed me to do in uh, Zimbabwe was to really triangulate and to understand better what things I had observed were sub-Saharan African versus West African. And because the things that I observed in, in South Africa and in or Southern Africa were just really quite different. And so that was very helpful to me as a scholar. Um, it was... Uh, it was a clear sign that I was not going to become a West African specialist. And that was okay with me because it was really more the 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 broader themes of culture and economics that I was interested in. Uh, so I saw it as an opportunity uh to really develop a more a, a better diversity of my understanding of what was going on in terms of culture and economics by having a different example that's I, I learned more by by going to a different place.
0: So I wanna ask you. uh th- a question actually related to fieldwork, both the the, Ghanaian experience and the Zimbabwe experience. So you're not from either Ghana or Zimbabwe. That no. <laughs> that you, it, it would be difficult, I would think, for you to pass as being from either of those places. How do how do you, um, but yet something like a fieldwork would seem to require that, they, that the people you talk to trust you, want to mm-hmm. share their stories about their lives, about their yeah. judgments, about their meanings, and, and the other things that you've talked about as being important. How do you overcome that challenge of, of getting people who are not like you in a lot of ways to share Yeah. sort of?
1: Well, one thing is never fool yourself that you're going to completely overcome it. I mean, I think that that's really important. Um, clearly, had I come from uh, a Ghanaian context, for example, if I had grown up um, – uh, and I and I looked like them, and I could I could um, speak uh, the native uh, West African languages. That that would have been a leg up in many ways. Don't get me wrong; that would have been helpful. But uh, given that I couldn't do that, there are other ways uh, to uh, present oneself that that gains trust. And one way I found that presented uh, to present myself was as a learner. Uh, and it helped in that case, that uh, especially when I was starting out, that I was young, uh, that I, I didn't look much different from an undergraduate student, and so uh, I had an interpreter who worked with me, um, who would who would introduce me when int- introducing me to um, uh, the interview subjects um she would introduce me in a soft voice uh that i was a student and that i was doing uh, a little research project and that just wanted to ask some questions in a very very deferential manner and what i realized she was doing is um you know has she gone in and and said you know, and, and had uh, kind of pumped me up as something, as someone with more status. That that would have not been a good way in. That would have not put people at ease by emphasizing the fact that I was in a learning posture. By emphasizing the fact that I just wanted to learn from them, that they were the experts. Um, people were very, very gracious, and they were. And and because I was an outsider, they had they understood that everything needed to be explained to me. And uh, and that was really helpful from the standpoint of fieldwork, because it meant that they were forcing themselves to articulate what to an insider would have been obvious. And if they didn't articulate it, then it's not data that I can count. I can gather. So your outsider status can actually be beneficial because you can just kind of present yourself as someone who's painfully naive and you really need their help. And if you can overcome the kind of, you know, ego blow that that might do (laughs) do, uh, to yourself, um, um, if you can have that humility, it really, really helps uh, because you can gain a lot more, a lot more information that way. And most people want to help a sad puppy lost in the woods. And I just sort of presented myself as a sad puppy lost in the woods. And they were very, very helpful. Um, And, you know, and I've, I learned from that as I've, you know, grown older and, you know, and, and, uh you know, look more like what people might understand to be or uh, expect of a quote-unquote expert, I've always tried to keep some of that spirit of naivete and, you know, help me through this. This is something I don't understand. Can you walk me through that? And, And that's hard for a scholar because as scholars, we're trained to present ourselves as if we know a lot of stuff. We are trained to present ourselves as being in the know. And so suddenly you have to present yourself as really being someone who's, again, that lost puppy who needs guidance. Um, that can be a hard shift for a, a scholar, and, but it's really been an important one and it, to my work.
0: So your next time in the field was actually uh, a project that we worked on together in the, the Gulf Coast Recovery Project where we were trying to uh, – sort of look at post-disaster recovery. I guess the a question that I've actually puzzled over for, uh, you know, a decade now is why would an economist be interested in post-disaster recovery? You can understand why an economist would be interested in entrepreneurship or market women or economic practices like rotating credit mm-hmm. and these kinds of things. These all, even if the approach using field work or what have you isn't an approach that the typical economist might do, you could still mm-hmm. see that these are Clearly, something that an economist would be interested in. But why would an economist be interested in? Yeah. Well, first, in you,
1: you and I both need to, uh, as we have often do, credit uh, uh, Pete Becky for getting that insight right away. That he was listening carefully to the discourses, the competing narratives on what was going on just after the storm, and and he kept thinking, you know, goodness, we need the economist's narrative in this. That that was, um, that was just. Uh, you know, uh, conspicuous by its absence. And so when he invited us in, we, that was the first question we talked about is, is what is the advantage that we bring to the table um, uh, in in terms of um, our economic background and training? And one of the things that's uh, important to remember and think about as in a, in a post-catastrophic disaster moment is that all of the Uh, social systems that make our lives work ordinarily are suspended, at least temporarily. Um, Markets don't work well uh, in these moments. Uh, If there's been, you know, complete and utter disaster, uh, you know, it doesn't matter that you've got a credit card. It doesn't help you uh, in that moment. Uh, So markets aren't working. Uh, Governments aren't aren't working. I mean, even government resources were incapacitated for a, a good length of time. Uh, the uh, kind of social structure of churches and um, uh, com- community support networks you know they're not working and so we're in a moment when everything is is, is washed away. there's a kind of vacuum um, even if there are people still there, the social systems um, are temporarily suspended And so we are in a moment when we can start to think about okay well how do we regain the complex, social coordination that we take for granted most of the time, you know, how does that how does that reboot? How does that get reinstituted? And we learn a lot about the social coordination process generally by really ca- taking careful, paying careful attention to how it is that uh, communities reboot and regain those uh, practices and habits of widespread social coordination when there's that vacuum in the post-disaster moment.
0: So let me ask you about a couple of those communities that we spent some time in. The, the One, the Vietnamese American community around the Mary Queen of Vietnam Church. Could you just talk some about that community and, and, and maybe spend some time talking about Father Vian and who he was, what role he played in?
1: Sure. The uh, New Orleans East community uh had uh, pri- prior to Hurricane Katrina, approximately four thousand uh, residents within a one-mile radius of the church, uh, the Mary Queen of Vietnam Catholic Church, and that, uh, and almost everybody in the community was a member of that church. And Father Vien was the head pastor at the time. And after the storm, uh, there the community was really scattered across. Uh, numerous evacuation sites across different cities uh, you know in the in the south and in, uh, in Texas and in various parts of Texas and in, in um, uh, Georgia and Mississippi and and so they were really scattered and the community was um, really paying attention to the uh, bring New Orleans back Commission uh, statements that were coming out just after the storm where they were saying, look, you know, in, in communities that have been really devastated, uh, like in New Orleans East, uh, we we don't really want people coming back on their own. We want to take stock. We want to wait. We want to figure out what it's going to take to really rebuild these communities. And then we'd bring everybody back in a I carefully planned, orchestrated manner. And maybe some of these communities we won't rebuild at all because we don't, uh, you know, we're not sure if it makes sense to provide public services um, out to these distant areas um, when there's only a couple of people who've come come back. And so maybe there's some communities that have been so devastated that we're not going to allow them to rebuild. And we're going to use eminent domain to kind of basically take over uh, some of these communities. Well, um, like a lot of community leaders, Father Vienne was paying close attention to to this and uh and he was very smart i mean he understood that um he didn't use this language but you know we came upon this language that he understood that as long as the community stayed empty if there was a kind of uh civil society vacuum that uh government would the government presence would uh grow that in order to kind of keep uh you know, the government orchestration to keep people out um, or to control the rebuilding process at bay, uh, he needed to get his own people back. And he needed to get people back as quickly as possible. So uh, right away, he started going from evacuation site to evacuation site, sharing pictures, sharing stories, sharing messages. you know during this time, cell phones weren't working, people didn't know where other pe- members of the community were. He was knitting together again the information that flows within that deep social network within the community um, that he could rely on the neighborhood grid system that they had established prior to the storm and had been in place for um, decades, that uh, when someone needed help or assistance, there were sort of like block captains that would um, uh, check on people and to make sure that uh, there was a kind of um, uh, sense of, of care, mutual care, mutual assistance um, uh, Happening um, within the neighborhood, and that was a well-organized effort. That effort, uh, the the sort of local leaders, um, uh, the lay leaders within the community, ended up serving as kind of um, you know uh, captains of recovery, like they would be the the team leaders uh, in terms of the effort to to return. So what we see here is a kind of Togvillian theme where the habits of association that were established prior to the storm were de- redeployed, were deployed in a very conscious way uh, to get people back. And uh, one of the really dramatic moments was in, I think it was the third week of October. So third week of October after the storm in 2005, uh, you know, like parts of, of of downtown New Orleans were just virtual ghost towns. And in that moment, they had uh, they had gotten the word out that there would be mass would be held uh, on that day, and there were um, several thousand people who came back for that uh, church service, and. A lot of them couldn't stay. They they just drove in and then went back out. But they but they they uh, took Father Vian at his word that you show up and you come and we we reconnect as a community together. It was an opportunity to reconnect. It was an opportunity to share information. It was an opportunity to orchestrate and plan their eventual return. But the most important thing is it showed a presence they they took pictures, they took video, they made it very, very public that this community was a community that was capable of mobilizing and returning. This was a very powerful political statement to anyone who had a mind to not letting this community come back. And he used language that was reminiscent of, you know, of um, uh, Tiananmen Square, where it was, you know, are they going to bring in the bulldozers and tear down this place? You know, I don't think so. We will line up all these people in front of the church, and, and if they want to bring their bulldozers in, we're going to be bring the cameras in. And so that threat back to say we will use this kind of imagery uh, to our advantage to keep you out was a very clear signal uh, that they were not going to allow their civil society – to be occupied by anyone other than them, and and that was uh, that was the start of a, a very successful re- rebound and recovery.
0: The, so let me ask you about another sort of leader that, that proved to be pretty important, Doris Voitier. Do you remember her story? Can you?
1: Yeah, uh, Doris Vaudier was um, uh, the uh, superintendent of the Saint Bernard Parish uh, school system. And her story, there's so there's so many threads that I that um, uh, are are remarkable here. One that I won't do justice is the leadership role she played in the storm itself, in making sure that people were safe. She stayed behind because she knew that there were people uh, who were vulnerable, who who wouldn't have been able to get out. A lot of them who were physically disabled, in some way or another, uh, that she knew that the um, School was going to be the, their shelter of last resort, and she was going to be there with them, and uh, that was a harrowing experience. Uh, as a wall of water uh, came in down from the ninth ward after the levee breach, uh, Saint Bernard is um, uh, southeast of that region, and it and it surrounded by water on three sides. And they were, and so uh, they not only had the flood damage. Uh, that was long term, but there was the surge effect of uh, the wall of water that came their way. Um, in the entire parish or county, um, there were only four buildings that weren't uh, uh, completely flooded. So, out of an entire um, region, you know, only four buildings that weren't, and this this uh, community was devastated. And her. Uh, uh, thought immediately was what we really need to make sure of is that we get our first responders back so we need our firefighters our police we got to get them back and you know a lot of those folks have families and they are going to need to bring their families and so we're going to need a place to um uh educate their kids and, and get their kids back in school so uh in a very makeshift way uh you know on a on a kind of promise and a handshake uh they uh, uh you know, found temporary buildings and 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 got them sent in and uh, and and put up a a school, a makeshift school. And initially, they thought that they were going to get when they said, "If you're going to come back, uh, you know, you need to register." Uh, and they thought they were going to get maybe 50 uh, kids uh, registering, and instead, it was like 750. Uh, that were registered. And it suddenly, uh, you know, was a a moment where this was more than just responding to um, the needs of the first responders. This was going to be a lever. Getting the school back up and running was going to be a lever that would uh, facilitate the return of the community as a whole. And it was a a tremendous lesson for all of us on the research team that these um, critical players, like a school, for example, a church in the case of Father Vian uh, and the Mary Queen of Vietnam Church, that these critical players in communities can be the thing that tips the balance that allows people to come back, in part because it solves a logistical problem for them, but also in part because it sends a very powerful signal that Resources are being mobilized such that normal life is going to eventually be able to be had in this post-disaster environment, and so that that experience with uh, Mrs. Vaudier was uh, very important to our learning about what was essential to overcome the collective action problem associated with a post-disaster moment.
0: So, I so we've in in those two stories, you you you, you talked, and 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 some of it may be that I led. Sorry, I Often leading questions, but you talked about two leaders, mm-hmm. and so is the should the takeaway be the the way that you recover from a disaster is that you have a strong leader, or is there some other takeaway that you should that we should come away with? How is it the yeah, communities I, recover from disasters?
1: I do, and and I think that those leaders in particular would be the first to say. Um, uh, what And I would agree that the um, the real takeaway is that uh, embedded within communities is tremendous capacity for recovery in a post-disaster environment. And that, that goes to going, circling back to the sort of lessons of Austrian economics, one of the, you know, what are we interested in? We're interested in patterns of social learning. So, for example, you know, whether it's economic development or, or uh, recovery in a post-disaster context, overcoming a collective action problem, these are examples of, of social learning. Learning and, and widespread social coordination, um, leaders can play a role. But the way, the reason why they were able to play a role is because they were very, very good at tapping the capacity within the community. So, in the case of St. Bernard Parish, when the sc- schools got back up and running, uh, what was what was um, uh, illustrative about about that um, set of stories was that. Individual members of the community were playing a critical, all playing a critical part in getting the school back up and running. There were there were um, dozens of people who were critical to those first early weeks, volunteering their time, making it happen. It wasn't all Doris Fodier, and she would be the first to uh, acknowledge that. Um, Father Vienne was tapping the capacity. Uh, the habits of association within that community, he understood where the kind of cultural levers were that would tip the balance and bring people home. He understood that um, he could leverage the, um, the church's resources of the space so that he could bring people gathering back together to share um, to share resources, to share information— um, but he what he was doing is he was tapping the capacity embedded within the, within the community and and so i think that's really the lesson is that if we want to shape public policy around a, a successful post disaster recovery what we should be geared gearing our public policy towards is finding ways to tap the capacity that's embedded within uh, in the community so we might ask the question: Well, is there anything good that government can do in these in these moments? I think yes. The answer is yes. If the government can move the uh, uh, the fallen trees or uh, houses that are in the middle that have been shifted off of their foundation and are now in the middle of the road. Uh, If they can get in quickly and move those so that people can get past, can, can use the road to get to their property, that's a very simple example that shows that there's capacity in the person who wants to get to his house and fix it, but if he can't get there... That's a real problem. So government can be most helpful, not by fixing that person's home, right, because you could only do so much if, you, if that was your strategy. But if you can get the barriers out of the way, if you can get the roadblocks out of the way, you open up and tap the capacity within the, uh, within the community. And similarly, if we think about some of the public policy that was in place, some of the public policy acted as barriers, and and they put on brakes into uh, not allowing people to come back, uh, pu- having extended curfews that wouldn't allow people to return. Public policy that puts the brakes on, rec- on the recovery and allowing people to return who have the capacity to return, um, that's a real problem. So- Think about those public those those policies that stand in the way. They're like the trees or the the houses that have been shifted into the middle of the road. No one can get past them. If we clear those out, uh, we are doing a better job in terms of of uh, developing a post disaster environment that's going to generate very speedy recovery.
0: Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the F.A. Hayek Program, visit ppe.mercatus.org.